0: excited to have a TMT again today. Christina's going to come and give us a TMT. And if you haven't been around Life Church, TMTs are two-minute teachings, trainings. Sometimes we talk about missions, travels, too, um, give reports on that. But we've been doing throughout this year of Belong um, lots of TMTs on spiritual biographies, our church mothers and fathers from the past 2,000 years. And I, for one, have found them incredibly encouraging. I know many of you have talked to me about them. So let's welcome Christina. She comes and gives us another TMT.
1: So I just want to tell you a short story today about uh, a man named Johann Blumhart, who lived in Germany in the 19th century, uh, the 1830s and 40s. Uh, He was the pastor of a small German uh, town called Motlingen. It's it's in the Black Forest. And uh, when he first started there, he started getting reports from people in his parish um, that this group of siblings who lived together, they were older siblings, but they'd been orphaned, uh, that strange things were happening in their house and that they needed help. So he went to check it out, and they were right. Strange things were happening. So there were reports of uh, noises, strange noises, of lights flashing on and off, of objects moving without being moved um, in the traditional manner. Um, and so this was very strange. And Blumhart and other leaders of the church would go over there and sit with these siblings and talk with them. And one of them, in particular, a young woman named Gottlieben, um, seemed to have particular strange manifestations. And she didn't like Pastor Blumhart to come near her. When they offered to pray, she would protest uh, wildly. Um, and after spending time with Gottlieb and her siblings, Bloomhart and the other leaders in his church came to the conclusion that she was being possessed and harassed by demons. And this was not at all in Bloomhart's tradition. He was a Lutheran, so this is not something he decided on lightly or rushed into, um, but, uh, but, but came to this conclusion over time. And so, he and the other leaders of his church, uh, his wife in particular, started what was nearly a two-year battle against the demonic powers in this house, um, and that had this presence in their parish as well. It wasn't just the house, but it, it was spreading throughout the whole parish. There was a, there was a spiritual deadness in Motlingen. And uh, Bloomhart. And the others refused to use. They weren't used to doing exorcisms, so they didn't quite know what they were doing. But he, uh, over time, came to the conclusion that they should never use any rituals, charms, or uh, mantras to respond to the demons. But they should only use the name of Jesus in prayer, and uh, their 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 phrase became "Jesus is Victor." And so they would they would say this whenever the demons seemed to have uh, seemed to be gaining power. Um, and so for almost two years, uh, they would pray and they would say the name of Jesus and wait to see what would happen. And finally, uh, right around Christmas, uh, after almost two years, the battle ended as a demon left, one of the, left the whole house with the shout, Jesus is victor. And this seems like the end of the story. Oh, great, super, a, a demonic exorcism. Um, but uh, but actually, that's just really the beginning of the story because uh, people began to flock to Bloomheart and to his church in order to confess their sins. In other words, this battle with demonic powers leads to repentance. Um, and the Lutheran church, especially in the 19th century, was nervous about this because it felt... A little too Catholic to them, that people were coming and wanting to confess their sins and get forgiveness, and Bloomhard himself was worried about this and didn't want to take more authority to himself than he had, uh, which is always a wise and good thing in a pastor. Um, but uh, but people kept coming to him, and he uh, and he felt um, called to pronounce forgiveness over them. And as this happened, this this. Um, this, uh, I don't know, this pattern of repentance, confession, and forgiveness, the whole area uh, came to be marked by miracles and healings and widespread revival. Uh, There's one story in the book of um, Bloomheart and several other friends walking between two villages, uh, and they're in the Black Forest, so there's forest all around them. And one of them had just written, uh, just made up a hymn on on the spot, and they were singing it. And then they suddenly realized that in the forest all around them, there was this loud chorus singing the exact same song that they were singing. And it was angelic voices. Um, They had just written the hymn. Nobody else knew it. Um, And so uh, so this revival was happening in Motlingen and the surrounding areas. And when some argued that Blumhardt and others had no authority to forgive sins, this is what he wrote. Jesus says, I have authority from my father to forgive sins, and those whom I forgive are forgiven. What the Lord did ought to continue, for everything he did as a man shall be done by other human beings until the end of days. The Father authorized him, and he authorized others. He said to his disciples, as my Father has sent me, so I send you. Thus his disciples could say to repentant sinners as decisively as Jesus himself did, take heart, your sins are forgiven. And what is to shake our conviction that this power remains in force for those proclaiming the good news today, that they too have authority to forgive sins. So, Bloomheart emphasizes as my father, Jesus' words, as my father sent me, so I send you. And Gottlieb, after her exorcism, became a incredibly important person in the community. She became a school teacher for the rest of her days and she and the Bloomhearts, Bloomheart and his wife, opened a home for people who were spiritually troubled or traumatized and she worked there for the rest of her life. And Motlingen, the town, became a spiritual refuge for many people. So God restored Gottlieben and the village of Motlingen so that they could act as agents of restoration for others. If you want to read more about this, there's a book called The Awakening by Frederick Zundel. It's free online and well worth reading.
0: Isn't that awesome? (laughs) Amen. And you know, the whole point of us doing a lot of these spiritual biographies, or one of the points, is this is your family, Gottlieben and... Bloomheart, they're your spiritual grandparents. You're, you're part of their family. You will live in eternity with them forever and ever. So you might as well get to know their names now, right? Um, we're going to be in Psalm 30 today, and I'm so excited to have Kyle come and preach to us. And you know, I love having a preaching team here at Life Church. There's several of our congregation that's on it. Some of them um, have their work in professional theology and teaching, um, others of them are business people, like Kyle. And what I love about having somebody who's who's day in and day out work is not in um, the church or in a theological profession is that it just says to the rest of us, every member is a minister, right? The priesthood of all believers. So all men and women, given the Holy Spirit, you have the task of making disciples and of studying the Bible and being good theologians. And so Kyle's going to come and give us the word of God today, and I'm really excited to receive it. Let's read Psalm 30 together. Where the psalmist writes, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from shale. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you, his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. But your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry. And to the Lord, I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me, O Lord, my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praises and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This is God's word.
2: Thank you, Dave. Well, a strange thing happened. Uh, in the decades following World War II, uh, post-war industrial boom led to incredible increases in prosperity, in technology, in production uh, that soared beyond any level uh, the world had ever seen, which is, of course, not strange uh, to any of us who know uh, recent history. Uh, but what was strange, uh, at least perhaps to the Christians in this room, is that self-reported happiness soared right along with it. The General Social Survey uh, is a 50-plus year running research project, widely regarded as uh, one of the most respected in the country. It began by asking a simple question. How happy are you with life? How happy are you? And sure enough, we see uh, that in the decades following incredible increases in production and prosperity, uh, in the decades after we detached our laws, our schools, Uh, our institutions from God, uh, and we see material consumption, we see material production increase uh, to the points of which our world had never seen, what do we see? We see happiness increase. Religious skeptics uh, enjoyed a heyday, and it seemed as if the words of old King David, uh, the author of our psalm here today, uh, would fade into the annals of history, no longer relevant to a world uh, that had found its way without God. And why would the words of Psalm 30 be relevant? Uh, Psalm 30 sings a song of thanksgiving, right? Thanksgiving for healing, for, for restoration. Uh, and what would the world need to be thankful for, right? We didn't need a God to restore us to anything. We had found the path to happiness ourselves, had we not? And then along comes the 21st century, and with it, even greater uh, promises of more things, more production, more prosperity, more peace, Uh, And it starts out with an economic boom. Uh, The Soviet Republic had collapsed. Uh, Poverty was on the decline uh, around the globe. Uh, And prosperity was continuing. Even uh, diseases like polio had been eradicated in most of the developed world thanks to incredible uh, advances in modern medicine. And self-reported happiness stood at an all-time high. But oh, I think, if... uh, (laughs) they could have seen just one day in the life uh, of the 2020s. Am I right? Uh, As we can see looking back on it, happiness quickly began to plummet uh, after the turn of the century. The decline started slow uh, in the early 2000s and accelerated around the years 2010, 2011, which many correlate with the mass advent uh, of social media. And the decline continued uh, until the year 2020 which I think needs absolutely no commentary at all. And today, indeed, happiness stands at an all-time low. The National Institute of Mental Health now estimates that over one in four adolescents uh, has a diagnosable anxiety disorder. Diagnosable, not just struggles with anxiety, but actually has a diagnosable condition. Antidepressant use rose 65% from the years 1999 to 2014, and in a single year, uh, 2020, we see major depression increase 28% in a single year. Suddenly, old King David doesn't seem so stupid. (laughs) Uh, Indeed, we read Psalm 30 today and we're immediately drawn in by some potent verses like his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. Indeed, these verses, uh, they speak to us so plainly, so powerfully, it's almost as if uh, no sermon is needed. And of course, practically isn't. Um, I think it's why Martin Luther called the Psalms a mini-Bible. That's why Jesus uh, quoted the Psalms more than any other book. You see, the Psalms, which you can can understand as the inspired prayer book of the Bible, uh, they allow us to see God as he really is. See, the fullness of his heart and of his character are laid bare for us in the Psalms. They're plain, they're out in the open. Indeed, if you want to get to know the God uh, that we gather here to worship today, you'd better be reading the Psalms. But a risk we can run with the Psalms is that sometimes we can read them too plainly, right? We can read them uh, too independently. What do I mean by this? Um, Well, we love many things as Americans, but we really love short-form content, right? What do I mean by that? I mean uh, messages that we can digest easily with our ever-decreasing attention spans, right? Messages that can fit in 140 or 280-character tweets, messages that can fit on... Cute little framed wall posters that you can buy at Hobby Lobby, right? Uh, and individual Bible verses can make tremendous short form content, right? Including many from our Psalm today. You know, we see verse like verse five, you know, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. These are incredible. Um, and short form content can be incredibly encouraging. Uh, it has been to me a number of times. Dave, uh, Pastor Dave mentioned that uh, I work in the field of business. Uh, Hospitality is one of my day jobs. I help manage a small company that manages hotels and restaurants across uh, the Midwest. And as you can imagine, the past couple of years has been incredible, uh, incredibly difficult for me and uh, our entire team. And one of our thoughtful team members, during the early days of the pandemic, uh, in some of our darkest, most uncertain times, he started sending out just little messages of hope. Called it the daily boost. Sometimes there'd be a psalm. Just a simple verse. Sometimes there'd be a, just another message of hope or motivation, and it was incredibly helpful. It got us through some very, very dark times. Um, and I, I know it's a testimony of many of us that we've probably experienced similar you know, hope and encouragement, whether it's through social media or elsewhere, uh, but there are risks. When we start looking at the Bible verse by verse, when that becomes our primary form of consumption, we have risks. We have a couple risks. First off, uh, we can take, take them out of context, right? Usually the shorter the words uh, that we focus on, the easier it is to take something out of context. Uh, secondly, we can overuse them. Uh, you know, we can, we can repeat the same verse to the point that it loses its meaning uh, or to the point where it may lose its, or may take on a different meaning altogether. But thirdly, uh, the third risk that I think that can happen when we start looking at the Bible verse by verse is that we can get too comfortable with them. We can settle for them. What do I mean by this? Uh, former Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes once said, I would not give a fig for the simplicity on this side of complexity, but I would give my life for the simplicity on the other side. Did you get that? He said there's two kinds of simplicity, and they're separated by this great, this great chasm of, of, of life's great complexities, of the great sufferings, of the great trials, the great hardships in life. And he said, when you settle for the simplicity that doesn't require you to wade through these, he said, that's not worth anything. But he said, there's a simplicity on the other side that requires you to venture through the great hardships, the great complexities of life. And he said, that, that is worth everything. And of course, it's that simplicity that the Bible calls wisdom. And that is what we're going to try to get to uh, with our psalm today. Uh, So what is our psalm? What's it all about? Um, what, is, what is the big picture here? Um, as we already mentioned, Psalm 30, it's categorized as a psalm of thanksgiving. Uh, Pastor Dave mentioned we're going through uh, the Revised Common Lectionary uh, as a church. It's a year-long uh, endeavor where we're going through the same scriptures that churches around the world uh, are going through, and I don't think it's any coincidence that we find ourselves in the third Sunday of Easter and we have a psalm of thanksgiving, right? Uh, It's a wonderful way to respond to the message of Easter. It's, in fact, the only way to respond. Um, And immediately in our psalm, uh, David makes it clear exactly what it is he's thankful for. Verses 1 to 3 show us uh, a man who has come within spitting distance of death. He's at death's door, and he's cried out to God, and God has answered him, and he's restored him back to life. Uh, Verse 3 says, you restored me to life. So right away we find the central thesis of uh, David's psalm, the very reason he picked up his, his pen or, I guess, hammer and chisel feather. I don't know what he was using exactly back then. I should have done more homework. Um, but the very reason that uh, he decided that he had a message that he wanted passed down for all of history its restoration. Restoration. hes restored. It's what allowed David to say such incredible statements such as, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Only somebody who has ventured through some great complexities and come through to the other side by this great restoration and, and experience some great restoration can say something so deep, so meaningful. Did you come here seeking restoration for something in your life today? Restoration means to return something to a former or an original state. Something in your life out of place, something no matter how small, perhaps your life on whole, you feel it's just out of place. You feel that there's an invisible standard of something else that it ought to be that it just isn't. The Christian philosopher G.K. Chesterton said in his uh, book, Orthodoxy, I had often called myself an optimist to avoid the too evident blasphemy of pessimism, but all the optimism of the age had been false and disheartening for this reason, that it had been always trying to prove that we fit into the world, but the Christian optimism is based on the fact that we do not fit into the world. (laughs) Have you ever felt out of place? Have you ever felt like Chesterton, that no matter how hard you try, something just doesn't seem to fit in this life? That you keep trying, uh, but something in you is just telling you that things ought to be different? Perhaps you're sideways with a friend. Perhaps there's a broken relationship, a failing marriage. Um, perhaps your career is off track. Are any of those things true in your life today? So you're not alone. Uh, the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Romans that all creation is waiting in incredible agony and pain, knowing that things are not as they should. It's knowing that it, that it is awaiting some great restoration back to a former Or an original state. And the good news is that our psalm today contains a secret, uh, one that is echoed across all of Scripture that believers through uh, the centuries have found life-changing, and we're going to unpack it today. So what are we going to unpack? What are we going to learn about Psalm 30? We're going to learn three things very simply. Uh, First, we're going to learn the meaning of restoration. Uh, How does the Bible, how does God define restoration? How does it differ from our own understanding? Uh, Second, we're going to learn, how do we get it? How do we get this restoration? The great $64,000 question, right? And thirdly, uh, we're going to learn what do we do with this restoration? What do we do with it once we get it? Um, And right off the bat, we may be surprised to find that there even is a third point, right? That we don't just end with how do we get this restoration? And it's, of course, this very presence of a third point that Uh, is contained within our secret here today. So uh, what does the Bible really mean? Let's begin. What does does the Bible really mean when it talks about restoration? How does it differ from our own understanding? Well, we tend to think in very simplistic terms, right? Uh, Our human understanding tends to think of, okay, I need restoration in my life. I want my marriage restored. You know, I want this relationship with my friend restored. I want my, you know, career restored to something that's meaningful and purposeful. Um, Maybe you want to reconnect with a lost child. Hear me, these are very, very good desires. Very good desires, and God's put them in your heart to do something. But they're not what the Bible's talking about when it primarily talks about restoration. What do I mean? See, these are symptoms. They're not causes of the true problem. You see the difference? They're symptoms, they're not causes. Recently, I was diagnosed with a very uh, unknown, very rare medical disease called COVID-19 uh, perhaps perhaps some of you have heard of it, uh, and I started experiencing symptoms, and after a couple of days I, I got to the point where I had, I had to go to the doctor, and I went to the doctor and the doctor looked me over and he said, Kyle, uh, the disease has actually progressed to the point where there's, I cannot actually treat the disease. He said, I actually can't do anything to combat or reverse the disease uh, that's currently attacking your body. He said, all I can do is what he called symptom control symptom control. He said, all I can do is try to to minimize the pain that this disease is causing you, but as far as actually um, defeating the virus, as far as actually doing anything to actually destroy the virus that is within you, he said, I don't have the power, I don't have the tools, right? I wasn't a candidate for it. So, of course, by God's grace, I'm here, left with some COVID fog, some reduced fatigue, and a wonderful uh, lesson in the difference between a symptom and the actual disease itself. Uh, let me ask you, have you ever been maddened at times by the seeming generalities of the Bible or of the Psalms? I might be, I might be alone here, but um, I know often, especially with the writings of David, uh, the author of our Psalm today, uh, sometimes it frustrates me not getting more specifics on the problems that we're going through in life, right? So let's take David for example. Um, You know, I know David, you know, he has an incredible number of good qualities, but he's also had an incredible number of failures in his life, right? You know, he's had, well, he's had failing marriages. Um, He's had, you know, at least one estranged son. He's had numerous failures as a leader, as a boss, um, in his job. (laughs) Uh, And I've often wondered, you know, how come, I mean, he wrote so many of the Psalms, how come he doesn't speak more pointedly to these issues? And it wasn't until I really was preparing for this message that God helped me understand, I think, a big reason why that is. You see, because as flawed as David was, David understood that all those things, his failing marriage, his family issues, his estranged children, his failures in his job, these were symptoms of his true problem. They were not the cause of his ultimate problem. And I want you guys to know this. I want everybody to know this. God cares about you too much, to just treat your symptoms. Okay? See, before, before God does anything else in your life, he you almost always goes straight to the disease itself. That's what we see in our psalm here. Uh, renowned Christian psychologists, Henry Cloud and John Townsend, uh, say in their book, How People Grow, many times, in the process of helping people grow, we get caught up in the particulars of helping someone restore his or her emotional or spiritual health, heal a hurting marriage, or make life work, and we lose sight of the bigger picture. But there really is a big picture. It's the story of God and his creation that was lost and his work to restore it to himself. You see, our human desire for restoration typically begins and ends with just the removal of pain, right? The removal of these symptoms, as it were. Um, But God, (laughs) on the other hand, is up to something so much more. See, God wants to restore us, every single one of us, and indeed all of his creation, back to a world that is so much bigger and so much better than anything you ever dared imagine. Pastor Tim Keller of New York says, the resurrection of Christ promises us not merely some future consolation for the life we lost, but the restoration of the life we lost and infinitely more. It promises, get this, it promises the world and life we have always longed for, but never had. Did you get that? The world and life we have always longed for, but never had. Folks, the kind of restoration that God wants to bring about in your life, in this church, this entire earth, is so much bigger than you ever dared imagine. (laughs) Every longing your soul has ever felt, every single desire that's ever crept its way in your heart. Did you know that God made a world where it all came true, where it was all designed to be perfectly satisfied? Yes, it's no secret, of course, it was this world, right? And he gave it to us, you know, for free. And what did we do with it? We stained it with our sin, did we not? See, Adam's sin, which is our sin, is we we decided we wanted to be like God, right? We decided that being his creation and living in the perfect world that he created for us, we decided it wasn't good enough. We rejected it. How's it working out? (laughs) Indeed, we can, we can feel the world crying out in agony. Can we not? I mean, the brokenness is evident all around us. Um, but, of course, the story doesn't end there, does it? No, the whole story of the Bible is that God determined to redeem his sinful people out of his great love for them. Right? See, and his desire is to ultimately restore us to the fullness of the creation that at one time he called very good. But our God, of course, he's not only a God of perfect love, he's also a God of perfect justice. And our sin, Adam's sin, it had offended the great king, so a great price would have to be paid, right? And God, in his infinite love, knew that the price had to be paid and, and as the only one wealthy enough, is the only one with enough means to actually pay the price. God elected that he would do so. So he sent himself, he sent his own son, Jesus, into the world, who lived a perfect life, died the death that we deserved for our sin, rose again on the third, descended into hell, and rose again on the third day, defeating death, which we can look at as the antonym of restoration. Why? Why did he do it? <laughs> because he wanted to share his restored world with you, <laughs> and with me, and with each of us. You see, this great story, um, it's a love story. <laughs> and you're the subject, each one of you. You see, that's, that's the message of the Bible. That is, when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about this great story of redemption, of restoration, that is the story. God tells us the why. He tells us why he's doing this whole thing called life. And this is why. (laughs) It's the cosmic story of God not just wanting to fix the outward problems in your life, but wanting you (laughs) and your very soul for all eternity. And if you want anything in your life restored, if you want anything healed, I hope you see that you better start here with the resurrection and life of Jesus, because until you start with the big story, right, until you let the big story captivate your heart, until you understand it in your mind and in your heart to where your response is that of David's in our psalm today, right, where he is, he's completely overwhelmed with gratitude, you see that? I mean, just read, go read, it's 12 verses. Go, go read it again, I encourage you afterwards. You know, he's, he is completely overwhelmed with gratitude. He couldn't help but pick up the pen and just write uh, a psalm of praise. See, until you do that, until, that, until this, this great message of love, of redemption uh, from our God, until this big story overwhelms your heart to that point, every other change that you try to enact in your life It's going to remain trivial and temporary. It's going to remain trivial and temporary. You see, there are ways, there are an infinite number of ways to enact change in your life. And they've been tried thousands of different ways over thousands of different years, over thousands of different worldviews and ideologies, right? And the testament over the ages is that they don't last. But the message of the cross endures. Um, One of the great moments in the history of the early church was when... Uh, the Apostle Paul confronted the Apostle Peter. Uh, You see, Peter had essentially been guilty of the sin of racism, right, in a little bit of a different form, but he uh, was eating only with his Jewish brethren, and he was excluding his Gentile brethren when it came to mealtime because of their, you know, uncleanliness in the Jewish tradition. Uh, And Paul could have gone to Peter and confronted him in a way I think most of us probably would have. We would have gone up to Peter and we would have said, Peter, dude, you know, this is pretty clearly racism. You're, you know, you're, you're being racist and God very clearly uh, is against racism, so you better stop it or we're going to have to do something about this, right? Uh, and that's not at all what Paul does. Uh, this is in Galatians chapter 2 for anybody who wants to go look it up later, but when, when Paul confronts Peter, he says, he says, Peter, what you are doing is not, in line with the truth of the gospel. See, he says, he says Peter, you're not, you don't understand the big picture, or at least this, you're not applying the big picture to this area of your life. You haven't let it sink deep enough into your heart to apply it to this specific issue. See, he goes straight to the disease. He doesn't care. Paul didn't care about the symptom in Peter's life. He cared about the disease, and he went after that part of his heart. I hope you can see that God cares so much more than just the sin that plagues your life right now. You see that? Of course, your sin's a problem. Of course, God wants to heal it. Um, But I hope you see that he's up to something so much more, something so much bigger than perhaps you came here thinking today. Um, Folks, God doesn't just want to fix your problems here on earth. He wants you the whole reason for this whole thing, this, the whole reason this is a love story, this is a story of redemption, the whole reason God didn't just wipe out the earth altogether right, and start completely over right, is because he determined to, re- to redeem and restore us because he wants you. He wants your very soul with him in all of eternity. He doesn't just want to you know, mold this into a bunch of little obedient, nice little Christian robots here on earth, as important as obedience is. He wants you. He wants your soul to be with him for all of eternity a love story you're the subject you're the object of god's love and when we talk about sin right you know in, in christianity when we talk about sin sin is literally just anything that gets in the way of god and his great desire for you you see that because god god is not putting any roadblocks. god does not put any obstacles in your way we put obstacles in the way anything that you make an obstacle of god pursuing you you can look at sin in your life Understand the fullness of what God desires to restore you to. I hope um, we've seen a little bit of that here. And the irony is that only when you see the fullness of this can you actually have any chance of dealing with your sin issues in any sort of lasting manner. And, of course, only now can we move on to point two, which is how do we get it? How do we get this great restoration, right? The $64,000 question. Well, I mentioned there was a secret in our message today. And we absolutely don't find it here. Uh, you see God intended this to be very simple, very clear Um, and I want you to know that if you have any desire to know this God, if there's anything in you that's been holding back from him, he has a message a very clear message he says he stands at the door and knocks see this God he's not not far off, he's right here Um, the reason we needed restoration, right it's not because God kicked us out of the garden though of course he did, right, we kicked ourselves out And ever since God has been uh, pursuing us, right? He's been waiting for the moment that we would just stop following after anything else. We would just turn around. See, he's right there. He says, he stands at the door and knocks. We don't have to go find him somewhere. We just have to stop following whatever it is we're following that isn't him, right? Come to me, he says. I am willing. Hear me clearly here, Uh, if you will turn away from whatever has been preventing you from following Jesus and believe on him today, this restoration can be yours. The promise of this restoration is yours today. Today you will be with me in paradise, uh, was Jesus' crystal clear message to the criminal who is being crucified next to him on the cross. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Now, perhaps you want to believe this. Maybe you think this message is for somebody else. Maybe you say, this is a beautiful message, Kyle. I've heard it. But you don't know me. You don't know the dark places I've been. You don't know the things that I've done. And a God like this, God could, he could never forgive me. You know, others, I think so, but not not me. Well, a few weeks ago, Uh, Pastor Dave preached a sermon on the story of the prodigal son. And it's a wonderful message. And I'm not going to have time to unpack the fullness that he did. I encourage you to go back to uh, Life Church Sioux Falls website and listen to it. Uh, But know this. We tend to think of that famous parable, right? Where the son went off, uh, left the father. We tend to think that the son wanted to go live the high life, right? He wanted to go party, right? And that's not the case. See, folks, the son... When he left his father, he wanted to humiliate his father. He wanted to offend him so deeply. He wanted to cause so much pain in his father's heart. And I don't have the time to unpack the fullness of why. Just understand that whatever your sin is against God, it was no greater than the sin of this son against the father. And of course, we learned many lessons in the the parable, but um, we know that when the son turned around, right? When he came back to the father, what did the father do? He ran to him, right? He didn't just welcome him. He ran to him and kissed him and kissed him. The great uh, English preacher Charles Spurgeon once gave an entire sermon on those three words, and kissed him. Uh, And in that sermon, he said, when the prodigal son came back and his father had kissed him, he was to his father as if he had never gone away. That's restoration, folks. He was to his father as if he had never gone away. (laughs) See, you cannot possibly have offended this God too much for him not to take you back. And when he does take you back, all those sins in your life that have been so great, they'll have been washed as white as snow, and he will make you to him as if you had never gone away. (laughs) Well, no doubt, uh, many of you here Have experienced this acceptance. Uh, You've experienced uh, the promise of this restoration, and yet uh, for many of you, you're thinking, boy, why don't I feel restored? (laughs) Right? You know, why does the promise of this restoration seem so far off? Uh, Anxiety, you know, broken relationships, all kinds of pain and suffering abound, many times, especially, you know, for those born again right, for those who are supposed to have already this promise of restoration working in their lives, right? So what do we do? What shall we say? What do we do with this restoration uh, if, though having it free of cost, available to us today, if it doesn't actually treat our problems, right? What do we do with it if it doesn't actually treat the symptoms, right? If there's still pain in our life? Well, theologians and Christians have been grappling with this uh, ever since Christ departed from the earth, indeed even uh, before, uh, the very last question the disciples ever asked Jesus was, Lord, when will you restore all things? They had seen the risen Lord, the disciples, you know, they had tasted of his restored kingdom, right? They would touched his resurrected body and even they knew that the fullness of this restoration was yet to come, right? And of course, 11 out of 12 of them would go on to um, die a martyr's death. Uh, so indeed, the pain was not done, but this is the current page. Um, well, sorry, um, theologians, uh, they call this time that we live in the overlap of the ages. More commonly, the already but the not yet, and it's been likened to that of uh, a prolonged engagement period uh, where in one sense you have a wonderful relationship, right, of, of, of joy, of commitment, of you know, adoration, of love, uh, but on another sense, the fullness of that commitment, right? The fullness of that love, the fullness of that joy is yet to come. It's a later date. And that's the, that's the page that we find ourselves on in this great restoration story. So the question, I think, is, is now, what do we do in the meantime, right? So we have, on one hand, you know, we have the promise of this restoration, and there is hope, there is joy available to us today, but yet the fullness of it is is yet to come. So what do we do in the meantime? Well, of course, here is the final point in our message, right? What do we do with the restoration? What do we do with this? Now what? <laughs> uh, and as God has an act for doing here, we see uh, another twist in our saga. Um, you see, though, though the saving work of restoration has already been accomplished, Christ did it. He has a job for you. He has a job for me. he's a job for each one of us. And it's in and through this job Uh, that we're going to unlock the secret of our message today, right? Which, of course, isn't really a secret at all, Um, but uh, I can all but guarantee that what I'm about to say is something that you're not living, or not fully. You ready for it? It's not about you. (laughs) See this great... Uh, this great promise of restoration, this great story of redemption, you are not the central figure. You are not the protagonist. Do you see that? Do you understand that? It's not about your happiness. You see, God didn't restore you for your sake. He restores you for his sake. I will lead you down the paths of righteousness for my name's sake. See, lucky for us, there is untold and unfathomable joy and happiness found within God's sake. Let's look at verses 9 and 12. Um, our psalmist is at the end of his rope. He's in the midst of crying out to God for help. And what does he say? He reasons with God. He says, what profit is there in my death? He says, will the dust praise you? Right. He concludes, he says in verse 12, that my, all this, that my glory may sing your praise. In other words, that all that I am may praise you. See, the psalmist understands it's ultimately not about him and his personal happiness. He doesn't say, God, restore me to life that I may experience this restoration, right? He doesn't say, God, I have no peace and no happiness in my life. Please restore me that I may experience peace and happiness. No, no, no. He focuses on God's benefits, not his own. Do you see that? The whole cry of his heart, even in his darkest moment, even his deepest despair, right? He's focused on God's benefits, not his own. Why? (laughs) Uh, One of the commentators I stumbled on in studying the message today, Matthew Poole, notes on verse 12. He says, the ultimate end of all God's mercies to us is our praise to him. The ultimate end of all God's mercies to us is our praise to him. That's the whole purpose of this story, folks. God desires your praise back to him. That is the why. Why? God gives us the whole reason underneath that he, he, he shows us his heart, right, in this. That this is the reason that he desires this whole great story of restoration. It is praise back to him. And David understood this. Is that what's getting you out of bed in the morning? Right? When tomorrow morning comes, Monday morning comes, graduates, you know, when you graduate, when you embark on this next great step in your journey, is that the primary motivation in your heart? Is that the first thing that gets you up, gets you out of bed in the morning? Well, whatever it is, I want you to know that an amazing thing happens when that does become the primary motivation of your heart. See, the Bible says that you are the one who benefits the most. Uh, The whole of scriptures, they echo this theme. In the New Testament, uh, Jesus tells us that the only way to find your life is to lose it, right? And many times we listen to that and we get saddened because we focus on losing our life, but the whole purpose of Jesus saying that was that you can find life, right? That life is available, but it doesn't come how you think. You know, you, you, it comes through losing your life, right? It's this great reversal. Proverbs eleven twenty five, one of my favorites says, only those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. And again, we see that refreshment is available. I mean, what an incredible promise, right? From our God that refreshment is available but it doesn't come how you think. It comes to refreshing others. Go back to why you may be seeking restoration today. Are you just trying to remove pain from your life? Are you mostly searching for your own happiness, your own fulfillment, your own refreshment? If that is your attitude, folks, explicitly or implicitly, you will never lay hold of the life-changing secret and truth of our message today. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. The only way to find your life is to lose it. What profit is there in my death? See, David, our psalmist, knew that the only way to experience the restoration that his soul so desperately desired was to throw away his life entirely, was to, was to give it into God's hands, get this, so that God could use it to be useful to God in the service of God's kingdom. You see, there was a purpose for it, right? He wasn't throwing it away. He was, he was giving it into God's hands so that God may do something useful and purposeful with it, right? What profit is there in my death? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? See, David knew the big picture story of restoration so well, he knew it wasn't about him. See, he knew that he wasn't the protagonist in this great story. He knew who the protagonist was, right? And he knew his his role, right? He knew that he was uh, not the protagonist, but he was the subject of God's love, but more than that, see, David also knew he, was, he played a different role. He played the antagonist. Do you believe you're playing the antagonist in, that, in this great story today? Because the Bible says that we, that we are, that in our sin, right, <laughs> in our fallenness, we have, we have changed ourselves from the, uh, the subject or the object of God's love into the antagonist of the story, right? But of course, through the repentance of the heart, God provides a way through the, through the resurrecting power of Jesus. He's provided a way for us to be restored, right, from this false role of antagonist back to our original role, which is the subject and the object of God's love. It's what allows David to say something like, you have turned my mourning into dancing. See that? But in order to do so, David, he knew he had to surrender his life completely into the hands of God. Uh, C.S. Lewis ends his book, Mere Christianity, with this very paragraph. Nothing in you, sorry, nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. Are you looking for Christ or are you looking for yourself today? Are you trying to profit yourself with your life or is your life trying to profit God? Are you trying to refresh him or are you trying to refresh yourself, right? What's that primary motivation in your heart? Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Folks, God is waiting <laughs> to throw everything else in. Right? But it doesn't come how you think. You must give him your life, all of it. You must see that it is about him, right? That the purpose of your life is to benefit him. But use your life to try and benefit and profit yourself, and you will get nothing. Okay, you say. Um, I would love to. I get it. But where on earth do I start? <laughs> you know, this is, a, this is a big world. This is a big general message you've given me. What do I do with this? Well, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, we read, Therefore... Did you get that? He's entrusted to us the message of reconciliation, which for our purposes today, you could translate as the job of restoration, right? This is it. This is the the big story, the key task in all of this, reconciling the world back to God, right? This job has been given to you and to me. He's entrusted us with it, right? Do you see that? Do you see the power, (laughs) the empowerment that, that, that lies in there? See, this means that every single thing you do has the opportunity to impact eternity, Graduates, whatever you do during the next stage in your life, there's thousands of majors and thousands of career paths out there, whatever you do, whatever the rest of you get out of bed Monday morning to do, whatever you do in school, right, (laughs) Um, whatever you do just in the course of the rest of your daily life, right, whether it's as small as picking up a piece of trash, maybe it's standing up to a bully, maybe it's encouraging a friend, right? Anything at all that can move earth, right? Our unrestored earth one inch closer to the restored, reconciled ideal that God had, right? Anything you do that just brings this earth one bit closer to what God intended, you're accomplishing his task. And again, we're not given specifics, are we? He just says he's given this to us, right? And I don't know what those specifics are for you, but I know that whatever work God desires for you to do, he'll make it clear for you. And you have to listen to him. So just let me ask you, how will you respond? How will you take this job of restoration? How will you take this ministry of reconciliation? How will you take it and apply it in your life? Tomorrow, Monday, yet today on Sunday, Right? How will you take this and specifically apply this to your life? Well, I don't know, but of course God does, and He will make that answer known to you, uh, because you see, you have your own page in this story, right? In this great story, this great cosmic story, you yourself have your own individual page, and I don't know exactly where you find yourself. I don't know where this page is in the great story, I don't know what's on your page. Uh, Maybe life's going pretty good, right? Maybe if the general social survey came calling, you'd you'd mark your happiness pretty high. And maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum. Maybe life's gotten you down. You know, maybe this whole message of restoration is something you've been crying out for. Um, Maybe you've already experienced this restoration, right? But still something in your life is broken today, you know? Something's not right. Something's not as it ought to be. I don't know. I don't know where you find yourself, but I know you have a story and I know God's not done writing that story because you're here. So my final question is, will you let God take the pen? Will you let him write your story? Will you stop trying to write your own story, trying to use your life to your own benefit? and Will you let him write it to his benefit And will you let him throw everything else in behind? Look for Christ and you will find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for pursuing us, though we didn't deserve to be pursued. We thank you for loving us. Uh, The Lord, we always haven't deserved to be loved. We thank you for giving us a role in this great story that you're writing today, God, and we pray for wisdom, knowing exactly how we can take up this great story, this great job of finishing, helping bring to completion your your great story of redemption, of restoration, of love. I pray each person in here, God, wherever they find themselves, would understand exactly uh, how important their role is, Lord, in this story. I pray that they would understand exactly Um, how big this story is and how big their role is, regardless of how small uh, the things they may do uh, that help restore your world. So Father, we thank you for restoring us. We thank you for giving us this great restoration that our souls just so longingly ache for. Um, You're so good to us. Uh, We pray this in your heavenly name, Father. Amen.